Welcome to the Dr. Hudat podcast, the show where we dive into the stories of some of history's most prominent physicians. My name is Vivia Balchandler. And I'm Jacob Edelman. And we're medical students at Drexel University College of Medicine in Philadelphia. It's our hope that this podcast will allow our listeners to gain a greater appreciation for medical history and the diseases we all love to memorize. Our first episode will focus on the French neurologist, Jean-Martin Charcot. Before we dive into Charcot's life, let's take a step back and learn about early 19th century France and medical advancements during the time. It was a tumultuous time in France as the 1796 revolution brought chaos followed by the rise and fall of Napoleon Bonaparte. In the midst of this mayhem and shortly after the French defeat at Waterloo in 1815, Charcot was born in Paris in 1825. He grew up in a very turbulent France amidst two separate French revolutions and the Franco-Prussian War. As such, many young men were conscripted to fight and pressure to forego their education. The French defeat in the Franco-Prussian War had lasting effects on the French population and Charcot's family, including widespread poverty. So what about medicine at the time? Well, Charcot was born into a time period burgeoning with medical advancements. For instance, he was born shortly after the first successful human transfusion by James Blundell in 1818 and the synthesis of quinine in 1820 as the first formalized treatment of malaria. While Charcot was in the early stages of his education, French chemist Charles-Henri Leroux discovered aspirin right on his home turf. Yet, it's still hard to believe that despite these advances, most physicians and scientists thought that miasma, or bad smells, was the cause of infectious disease. In fact, germ theory was not even formally conceived until the end of Charcot's lifetime. Overall, despite widespread social and economic turmoil in France, medical advancement would continue to flourish throughout the century. So now that we've brought in some context, let's take a minute to review why those of you in the medical in the medical world may have heard of Charcot before opening this podcast. Most obviously is from Charcot-Marie Tooth Disease. Now, if you were like me, the first time you heard this name, you also laughed out loud. After all, what curmudgeon would put tooth in the name of a disease that has absolutely nothing to do with teeth? Yeah, it was definitely off-putting to say the least as an MS1 just joining the world of medicine. In reality, this disease is a hereditary motor and sensory neuropathy, affecting mainly the weaker muscles of the arm and the leg. Charcot joint is another condition which bears the namesake Charcot. This is much more common than Charcot-Marie tooth disease, as often seen on the hospital floors. Charcot joint is a destructive joint disorder initiated by trauma to a neuropathic extremity, most commonly at the foot and ankle. The pathology of this disease is characterized by joint dislocations, pathologic fractures, and debilitating deformities. Also in the field of neurology, there are Charcot-Bouchard microaneurysms. These most often affect the lenticulostriate and MCA arteries associated with hypertension, high fat diet, and excessive smoking and alcohol use. Rupture of these aneurysms can cause hemorrhagic stroke and acute neurologic dysfunction. Wow, that sure is a lot of diseases. You would think that was it. But wait, Charcot didn't stop there. He has made a lasting impact outside of the neurological and neuromuscular fields by also meddling in the abdomen. For example, you may, you may remember Charcot's cholangitis triad from your surgery rotation. This is a pathognomonic set of symptoms used to diagnose inflammation of the common bile duct system. 
The triad is defined by jaundice, fever, and right upper quadrant pain. Ah, yes. Thanks for the reminder. Charcot really was one busy doc. So by now, we know what a hotshot this Charcot guy is. So let's take a stroll back into 19th century France and learn more about what made him tick. As already mentioned, the French-born Charcot came into the world amidst socioeconomic turmoil, political instability, and a catastrophic war effort. As such, his family had very limited means. So much, in fact, that Charcot's parents decided that they would only be able to fund the studies of one of their four children. So Charcot had to compete with his siblings just to go to school? Yes. It was believed that because of his introspective nature and artistic talent, Charcot had the greatest potential of his siblings and therefore was allowed to continue on to higher education. It's honestly crazy to think that he was this close to never even becoming a physician. I know, right? Can you imagine having to call it Babinski-Marie tooth disease or Guillain-Bruchard aneurysms? Just doesn't roll off the tongue in the same way. Yeah, those just sound a little ridiculous. So what happened with the rest of Charcot's siblings? I can't imagine that they were very pleased with this outcome. See, that's just the thing. Despite being pitted against each other, his siblings were very supportive of his endeavors. They're even rumored to have cleaned his room, brought him food, and helped with other small favors to show support. Honestly, I wish I had those kinds of siblings growing up. Mine just continuously wrecked me in Mario Kart with no show of mercy whatsoever. I wish I could commiserate with you, Divya, but I was a Mario Kart boss. But alas, I digress. So what happened to Charcot once he went off to school? Funny story, actually. Although he's now coined the founder of modern neurology, Charcot originally went to medical school to become a pathologist. His thesis focused on the pathologic differentiation between gout and chronic rheumatoid arthritis. Then he served as a pathology professor at the University of Paris for many years. How about that? I never realized Charcot had such a full career before he even entered neurology. Yeah, that's the craziest part. He was doing all of this while also studying neurology. Oh yeah, I remember now. Okay, so in 1862, Charcot was appointed the director of the Salpietre Hospital in Paris, also known as the Grand Asylum of Human Misery. Spooky. Yeah, the history of this hospital is absolutely insane. Did you know that it was originally created as a gunpowder factory? Hence the term saltpeter, the potassium nitrate used in gunpowder. Uh, no, I did not. It's pretty wild. The building was then abandoned until the 17th century. All I knew about it was that it served as a hospice for vulnerable, disabled women and prisoners alike. In fact, the hospital was described as a mecca of incurable women suffering from dementia, megalomania, and more. Yeah, sounds like a tough place to practice medicine. Yeah, his patient population was very unique. And when Charcot first began his practice, the hospital placed 1,500 patients with psychiatric disabilities and 2,600 disabled epileptic women under his care. But you and I both know that above anything else, he was most interested in patients with hysteria. Definitely. So let's set the stage a little bit. Around that time, what was the common understanding of hysteria? For centuries, hysteria has been associated only with females and thought to be caused by an effect of the uterus on the body. Ancient Greeks believed the uterus would migrate around the female body, place pressure on her organs, causing numerous ill effects. The philosopher Plato and physician Aetius called this phenomenon hysterical suffocation 
and theorized that the roaming uterus could be coaxed back to its normal locations by placing good smells near the vagina, bad smells near the mouth, and by sneezing. Um, let's just say gross and move on. Yeah, agreed. Good thing then that Galen, considered the father of Western medicine, disagreed with this theory. Instead, he held retention of the female seed within the womb that caused the symptoms of hysteria, including anxiety, insomnia, depression, irritability, and fainting in women. It's so crazy to think that only 150 years ago or so, this was the way hysteria was thought of. When I was reading up on hysteria, I found that Charcot became the first to apply a modern scientific definition to the condition. Charcot? What a surprise. I know. Who would have thought, right? So unlike his predecessors, Charcot believed that hysteria was a hereditary condition caused by a weak neurological system. So essentially, a mental disorder with physical manifestations. Most often, hysteria was set off by a traumatic event, after which the symptoms, similar to the historic symptoms of hysteria, were then progressive and irreversible. But interestingly, our main guy, Charcot himself, not only broke from traditional and contemporary understandings of hysteria, but also who could be affected by it. It was no longer just a women's disease. He proposed that both women and men could succumb to hysteria as a neurological aftereffect of trauma. Honestly, a pretty radical thought for the time. Yeah, especially since this was around the time the women's massacre at Salpietre and similar wrongdoings around town. It was truly a progressive discovery for the time. Hashtag feminism. Then, in perhaps the wildest twist to the story, in order to study hysteria in his patients, Charcot used hypnosis. He believed that the hypnotized state could induce the symptoms of hysteria. He would often open these hypnosis sessions to the public, which garnered much notoriety from the medical community and the general public. Sounds entrancing. Please stop. So let's move on to talk in further detail about his contributions to medicine. First comes his role in understanding multiple sclerosis. I don't ever remember learning this in our pathology course, but this man was actually the first physician to diagnose MS in a living patient. He came up with Charcot's neurologic triad, not to be confused with his other million triads, of course. Anyways, this neurologic triad for MS included nystagmus, intention tremor, and scanning speech. Although not pathognomonic, his discovery helped differentiate MS from other very similar diseases like Parkinson's. During my research, I learned that he was not only one of the key players in understanding amyotrophic lateral sclerosis, or ALS, but he named the disease. Charcot was the first to connect symptoms of ALS, including fasciculation, rigidity, contractures, and bulbar involvement with patient pathology at autopsy. ALS is even called Charcot's disease. Oh, good. So his pathology degree did come in handy then, huh? Most definitely. And I know that we already talked about Charcot-Marie tooth disease, but I feel like we need to backtrack here to talk about how they actually discovered and named this condition. So Charcot and his formal, former student, Pierre-Marie, encountered a similar condition that didn't quite fit under the diagnosis of ALS. Initially, Charcot and Marie suspected the uh, pathophysiology of this disease to be caused by a compressed nerve root. As such, they created probably one of the coolest and most terrifying contraptions I have ever seen to prove their theory. Let's just paint a word picture for our listeners. 
It's essentially a very barbaric device, right? In which the straps were fastened behind the patient's neck and both of their arms with the goal of ultimately elongating the neck and spine and relieving suspected pressure from the spine, spinal roots. Thankfully, Henry Tooth then came along and filled in the missing puzzle pieces. His study on peroneal muscle atrophy helped the trio deduce the condition was most likely due to peripheral neuritis versus a myelopathy. Thus, thousands were saved from ever using such a wacky device. Phew, truly a close call. Check out the show notes if you want to see this beast for yourself. So then, with his colleagues in neurology, Charcot also developed new ways of capturing images of various diseases. For example, he created a nine-camera automatic capturing system, very similar to how we think of stop motion today. By taking a series of pictures within seconds of each other, Charcot was able to describe dynamic disease characteristics, such as the Parkinson's gait and Gower's sign, now known to be a pathognomonic sign of Duchenne muscular dystrophy. So wait, Charcot was a pathologist, a neurologist, and an inventor? Wow, if only he could take on another field, say orthopedics, then I'd be sure to have greater respect for him as a game-changing physician. Thanks for the setup, Jacob. As discussed earlier, Charcot also dared to dip his ankles into the field of orthopedics and discovered the severe and deforming arthritis caused by long-standing sensory issues, coined today as Charcot's joint. Although we now associate this condition with chronic diabetes, Charcot initially made the discovery amongst women with long-standing syphilis. Overall, it seems like Charcot's expertise of pathology allowed him to fill in the gaps in the field and really control the forefront of neurology. Here's a prime example of life not being determined by the cards you were dealt, but how you play your hand. Okay, now it's time for the fun stuff. For the next time you're at Trivia Night and the category is Famous French Physicians or Names That End in a Silent T, we give you random facts about Jean-Martin Charcot. In the Charcot household, every Thursday night was deemed to be music night during which all talk of medicine was banned. Honestly, as simple as it may seem, this is such a dynamic idea that I think all physicians should incorporate today. His weekly ritual not only served as a conduit for his artistic adventures, but probably fueled his thirst for knowledge. Yeah, same. (laughs) All right, fun fact number two. He also refused to experiment on animals because of his deep love for them. Definitely progressive from his time. And also makes me love him even more. On the other hand, he was rumored to partake in psychostimulants to better understand his patient population. So, in essence, this boy knew how to party. For a responsible reason, Jacob, let's not forget. Yeah, 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 whatever. During his time in practice, he also mentored well-known pioneers in the field of neurology and psychology, including Sigmund Freud, Joseph Francois, Felix Babinski, and Guy de la Tourette. Please excuse my terrible pronunciation. It's not like I studied French for seven formative years of my life or anything. Yikes. Finally, and perhaps my favorite Charcot fact is about his son, Jean-Baptiste Charcot. After reluctantly becoming a physician like his father, Jean-Baptiste later later ditched the field and became a maritime explorer and named an island in Antarctica after his father, Charcot Island. You heard it here first, folks. If you're ever in need of a Father's Day gift for your dad, you can always just discover an island to name after him. 
Wow, so we covered a lot of ground today. Who knew that there was so much to learn about the tooth disease guy? Let's do a quick TLDR of everything we discussed today. Jean-Martin Charcot was born in Paris in 1825 amidst war, political disorder, and economic uncertainty. Of his four siblings, he was the chosen one to continue his education and become a physician. Although most well-known for his contributions to neurology, he actually trained as a pathologist. After joining the Salpetriere Hospital, he pivoted to focus on neuropsychiatry and neurology, most interested in the field of hysteria. His fingerprints are all over medical textbooks today, from Charcot-Marie tooth disease, Charcot joints, Charcot-Richard microaneurysms, and Charcot's uh, cholangitis triad, and even more. In sum, his contributions to the field of medicine have earned him the well-deserved title of father of modern neurology. And more importantly, the first subject of the Dr. Hudat podcast? That's right. We're all wrapped up with our first ever episode. Thank you so much for tuning in. We hope that this has helped put a face to the thousands of things medical professionals need to learn. If nothing else, you don't need to feel bad about listening to a podcast instead of studying because it was still medically related. And if you're ever in need of another distraction, be sure to tune back into the Dr. Hudat podcast. Until next time, we've been Thivia and Jacob. Bye. Bye.